guys to drop by. We're doomed. It's a trap. Julie, get us out of here. We would be honored if you would join us. Charming to the dance. This time you have gone too far. I got a bad feeling about this. Hello, what have we here? Red 5 standing by. This is our rescue. You must feel the force around you. I don't know what you're talking about. I am a Jedi. Like my father before me. I like the sound of that. The force will be with you. Always. Welcome to Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'm thrilled to welcome a brand new guest to the show, my very good friend and wartime consigliere, Omar. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, really nice to be here. I've been looking forward to it. I have been too, so thank you very much for being on the show. And to you and to everybody else listening to this podcast, people, it's December. Star The Force Awakens Wars is two weeks away. This is happening. This is a thing. (laughs) Exactly. My expectations are sky high, and I know that is dangerous. I know that's potentially disastrous, but I can't help it. Now, we used to talk Star Wars all the time. We watched the original movies on VHS in my basement. We saw, I think, two of the three prequel films in the theater together. We saw all three. We saw all three opening night in uh, May of 1999, in May of 2002, when you made a seriously ill-advised decision and and uh, skipped out, they didn't miss your college final, but like you came home preemptively, like 300 miles or whatever, or 200 miles to see the movie and then go back for a college final. Yeah. And then we saw the last one in May of 2005, like opening night. Okay, I'm glad that you remember that. It's just as well that you don't remember it. You talked about the the massive expectations that you had for the Force Awakens, and you know I'm I'm kind of here to talk you off that happy ledge but uh, you know i fear that i'm coming i'm going to come off as like sort of a curmudgeonly old man and i don't want to do that i still want to have optimism and hope about the films but you know one thing that i found really distinctive and i'm curious to see what you think about this is that for the majority it seems of star wars fans the 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 prequel trilogy when they considered the entire movies the entire mythology it didn't taint the whole thing to them it's like it's this distinctive like a distinctive set of really bad films that you know cause a lot of re- really bad memories, but Star Wars fans, by and large, are sort of able to bifurcate and separate out the the feelings that the the prequel trilogy evoked, while not having it ruin like the entire the entire experience for them. I, I couldn't do that. I, I mean, for me, like it was such a betrayal of the highest order that I couldn't help but contaminate how I saw the the original movies and and you know view, viewed in a different context it, it affected everything it really it affects how I'm going to see this movie so I'm curious about what you It took you me think. a long time to get to that point like honestly yeah. like after seeing return or revenge of the sith in the theater I didn't want anything to do with Star Wars for nearly a decade like I I didn't tell people I was a Star Wars fan I didn't feel like a Star Wars fan anymore I didn't I kind of I stopped reading the books I had been heavily invested in the expanded universe novels and comics and I just I just stopped and I was like no I'm 
I have no no interest in this anymore. And it wasn't until like 2013 when the announcement came mm-hmm. that Disney was going to make new movies. And I was, yeah. And even at then, like when when they first made the announcement, I was still I was cautious. I was like, okay, well, you know what? They'll make movies. They'll probably be objectively better than the prequels, but I probably won't care because they're not going to be my stars. My generation of films was older, and I'm, I'm just kind of like past that. So you, you actually came to that conclusion. I'm surprised that there was a static point when you were just you would sort of come to terms with the fact that it could never be the same. Because a large part of why I wanted to talk with you was to zero in on that point and to and to corral the American public. From the microphone of your podcast, and be like, "Hey, guys, relax, settle down." So it's 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 got a kind of heartening to me that like you were at that point, although it is kind of disenchanting that like the last two years have had you you know kind of spring away from that back into uh, fandom. And, and objectively, I still know it's like you know it, it is a new generation and. <laughs> It doesn't have to be as good as Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. Are you just, sure about that? I mean, can well, you, really, let's, you let's, really look into your let's heart talk and about like, that. Do that? Yeah, let's 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 absolutely talk about that because I think you and I uh, share similar backgrounds in terms of our fandom. Mm-hmm. And what's very apparent to me, what was apparent to me was so so I, I don't know if you share this experience, but like. You know, I, I was born in 1981, and so were you. And so we were sort of uh, coming into the scene at, at the near the tail end of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. But in my childhood, I was kind of led to believe that, like, I was a little bit of a freak in terms of the intensity of how much I loved those movies. Like, I, I remember renting the first time I, I, I joined, a, uh, my family joined a video store, got a video store membership. I rented Return of the Jedi for like, seven consecutive weeks until my parents were just like, Hey, no, you have to stop. Like you need to rent something else. And even then, like I was six and like, I cried, I was devastated. So like they, they caved and like, let me rent it anyway for like the eighth week. And I know you were like this too, on some level, I could recite the dialogue from all three, like forwards and backwards. I knew character motivations. Like I dreamt star Wars. I slept star Wars. I ate star Wars. And like, the thing was, is that like, I didn't realize that a great majority of people my age and a little bit younger and a little bit older were pretty much the same. I thought I was just kind of like on an Island. I knew everyone liked star Wars. I mean, for heaven's sake, like for my entire childhood, it was like the, the highest or the second highest grossing movie of all time for like my first 16 or 17 years of existence. So like I knew a lot of people liked it, but what I didn't realize was that like there was this, you know, obsessive fandom and really like you were one of the first people I met when we were in high school that was, you know, was as dedicated as I would, who, who taped the movies when they were broadcast on television and watched it and rewatched it so many times that like you wore out the tape. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of the star Wars trilogy as movies. I thought of them as like separate and apart from movies because they were so good and so captivating. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, home alone was a movie, (laughs) you know, back to the future was a great movie, but like star Wars was mind blowing. I didn't apply the same standards of movie making to those movies. And I didn't realize that everyone felt the same way, but they did, you know, those first three movies and we're, you know, I, I, we're going to talk about box office a lot because I think it's important. I think it's illustrative. Those first three movies for my entire childhood were in the top five or ten domestic box office grossing movies. Mm-hmm. They set the benchmark for how movies are going to be made. So what I didn't realize until I met you was that other people felt this way. Like I remember like 
Tracy Morgan joking on Saturday Night Live that, like, you know, he has seen Star Wars, like, well into, you know, the six figures. And, like, that was a thing. Like, everyone felt that way. And I didn't realize until, like, late in the game that, like, everyone felt that way. And, like, it wasn't until, like, really the special editions, George Lucas re-released the special editions, I think it was in 97, and people went to the theater and packed the theater. And that was a big deal. Like, that would never happen. You know, they tried to release, re-release E.T. They tried to re-release Jurassic Park. They tried to re-release Titanic, The Phantom Menace, in theaters. Like, subsequently after they were, you know, 10 years, 20 years, they gave them the digital remaster treatment. None of them did the biz- kind of business that the Star Wars Special Editions did. So clearly, you know, it was tapping into the zeitgeist. I was heartened to hear that, like, I wasn't the only one. And I think you probably had a similar experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I will say, I think you were the probably the first person I met that liked Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> for, for my childhood, between it, that was always, there was a clear division of that. You were one or the other. You were the first person, you were the anomaly. And I was like... Yeah, I, I didn't buy, even when I was a kid, I didn't really buy the notion that it had to be one or the other, just because they were so tremendously different. One was like a you know, a, a space opera, you know, one was, was again, existing on a higher plane. The other was more like purely science fiction. Mm-hmm. So to me, comparing Star Wars and Star Trek, it was like comparing Star Wars and Bonanza. Like it just didn't, <laughs> it wasn't even remotely the same thing. Right. But in my fandom, something changed, you know, right around the time I was graduating from high school and right, conveniently enough, right around the time I was graduating from high school was when the Phantom Menace came out. It was like spring of 99. And, you know, at first I kind of chalked it up to the notion of like, well, everybody grows up. You're a nerdy little kid who obsessively watches these movies and then you get concerned with like school and friends and like girls and like college and everything like that. And, you know, you just kind of feel like, okay, it's this organic letting go. But I actually think it went beyond that. And as I was attesting to earlier, I was heartened to hear that you felt like the prequel trilogy severely affected your ability to like those movies because for me, the prequel trilogy had a severe and damaging effect on you know my ability to really like enjoy the movies. Like like they were horribly you know like like people like I said were horribly disappointed with the prequel trilogy, but they were still able to like enjoy Star Wars and get into the phenomenon. I was not able to do that. I even granted Phantom Menace a mulligan because I figured the passage of time would be kind to it. I remember you and I exchanging emails and we were both like, oh yeah, history will be very kind to this movie. Um, you know, and, and honestly, like I didn't think a second thought about it because people hated 2001 when it came out. You know what I mean? Like I was convinced that like the filmmakers knew something I didn't and that, you know, just the fact that I found like a trade federation war kind of dull didn't negate its greatness but like as time went on and the films got progressively worse it started tarnishing the original trilogy for me i was not able to make the separation for example between like the haunting specter of darth vader you do a re- you you gave a really good explanation of like a scene that ex- explains like the uh the power of the original trilogy. And then you probably hearken back to this in your podcast. It's, it's a really good, simple explanation, but brilliant. It's like that moment when right after Han Solo is frozen in the carbonite in an empire mm-hmm. and the smoke clears and you see the Darth Vader mask, right? Do you remember? Yeah, it's my um, favorite Har- moment in the movie or one of them. It's unbelievable. It's your fate. It's, it's my favorite moment in one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, it, it just distills everything, like good versus evil, like the chilling, foreboding future that's facing our heroes. Just like all of those emotions is like kind of distilled into that one scene. 
And like because of the prequel trilogy, I was not able to make the separation between the haunting specter of Darth Vader and like the whiny presence of Anakin Skywalker. And like I know we joke around about Hayden Christensen's performance and everything, but like the thing is, is that like it, I couldn't see one without thinking of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it diminished for me. Um, and I couldn't square like the sort of flippant, like easy, relaxed chemistry of the actors and dialogue of the original trilogy. You know, like uh, I don't know, what do you think, a princess and a guy like me, with the kind of strained, overwritten garbage of the prequels. I admire the people who say it doesn't let them; it doesn't really affect the 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 specter of the original movies. But how can how can it not do that? So, with that damage having been done about ten years ago. What did you feel? What was your reaction in 2013 when you heard sure. that Disney had bought Lucasfilm? My reaction was it was border. It was like it was two extremes. And again, I'm going to come off like such a Scrooge. Like I, I'm, I want people to be excited about this movie. I would like to be excited about this movie. But when I go back to 2013, my reactions were either indifference or hostility, because you have to understand like the notion of what exactly was happening like when i saw that video announcement and it was george lucas and kathleen kennedy it it just seemed to be a very like cold mechanical announcement right so the the crux of the announcement was we are selling off i'm done making movies i've done everything i wanted to do which i think is crap like if if the prequel trilogy had been better received like and he hadn't taken so much abuse i think he would have wanted to continue but well, whatever he did red tails and he did that do did red not get, that did yeah. not get a lot of he acclaim. did do red tails that's true but like on one level i guess it could have been encouraging because like okay like we're taking the keys away from the incompetent you know creator that's fine but it was still horrifying because again this goes to storytelling just like my problems with the prequels like the best storytelling is organic okay a great idea is Ripped from the soul, uh, this is flowery language, and I don't mean to make it sound this douchey, but like a great idea is ripped from the soul of a screenwriter, and they agonize with it, or they just have a burst of inspiration and genius. They write it, they give it their treatment, they give it to a studio, right? I mean, that's that's how great art is made. That's how Mario Puzo wrote the Godfather novels. You know, Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky just when he was down and out and like he was just he was inspired and he wrote it and he took to studios and like he had to fight with them to get the rights to make the movie. Here it was like we're selling Lucasfilm to Disney and Kathleen Kennedy was like, We are pleased to enter into this partnership with Lucasfilm and make it a subsidiary, and I am pleased to announce that there will be new Star Wars movies coming out in uh, two years from now, and then two years hence from that, and then two years hence from that. Like, Kathy Kennedy just sat there, and she announced that, yeah, they were going to release additional Star Wars movies in X amount of time. No story treatments, no filmmakers have been consulted. It was just an announcement. It was a cold, bloodless, corporate decision. Not an artistic decision. And Ryan, like, that hardly ever goes well. From the corporate level, that's true. And I don't know if they had this on their radar or not. I don't know if they ever perceived of this, but I think this might have been the inevitable byproduct because Star Wars meant so much to people like J.J. Abrams and like a lot of the other yeah. filmmakers and the people getting involved that this might not have been their brainchild. This might not have been something that they were living with for a decade wanting to tell this story. Mm-hmm. 
but you can't tell me there aren't millions of people. If if they told uh, if they went to you and said, Omar, we would like you to give us a story for a new Star Wars movie, you could come up with a story that you felt as passionate about. You could find that spark because of the subject matter if you really That's lived an, with yes. that. So I, I can see that. So from the big picture, from the Kathleen Kennedy and George Lucas level and Alan Horn and everybody at Disney from them, yes, it might have been that robotic and that mechanical is just, yes, this is a business acquisition and we will make another Star Wars movie every year for as long as it's profitable, which is what they're doing right now. Which is exactly what they're doing. And, and but below them, you have a lot of creative yes. people who yes. do love this and do, yes. who do have that spark of creativity yes. and that drive and that passion. And yes. I think we're seeing that. So. Yeah, I think, I mean... Based on the nuggets and the tidbits and the crumbs we're getting, I think you're right. And that's an excellent point, and, and you're right. They, just because the studio honchos have a certain generic view of how these should be pumped out, that doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of like brilliant artists you know, just below the surface who this will be handed to. Mm-hmm. It's just symbolically, it's, it was just a little difficult to swallow initially. And remember, like Disney is not necessarily the umbrella that you want to be projecting. I mean, listen— like, we're talking about, like, a, a horrifying company, if there ever was one. Like, a company that, like, <laughs> releases, in terms of its its film output, releases basically overly sanitized, feel-good crap when it's not busy playing PR man for people like Roger Goodell. A company whose only artistic triumph, really, has was buying Pixar from Steve Jobs. But I, I don't think Disney has the soul of an artist, as strange as that sounds. And, like, say what you will about Lucasfilm. The guy resigned from the Directors Guild in, like, 1979 or 80 because like he wanted to make the movies his way now his way of making movies is terrible but it was still like his way and so when you have that kind of independence threatened remember disney is a company that will do whatever it can to pick up as much meat off of a franchise's carcass as possible disney does not give a shit about like the star wars legacy it's fine if jj abrams is directing this one but you yourself said they're handing the reins of like the subsequent like ninth episode to the guy who did Jurassic World and it's just like god the fact that they're preemptively sanctioning multiple sequels and spin-off standalone films without gauging whether the Abrams movie is good yet speaks volumes they don't care if it's good am i being unnecessarily grumpy no no i all of those points are valid but so far the interest in these potential movies has it's there. I mean, if you look at how many people purchased tickets after they yeah. saw the trailer on Monday Night Football, yeah, just the pre-orders, yeah, within a couple of weeks after the pre-order tickets went on sale, it already had the highest opening weekend of a film in the month of December. Of I all mean, that's time. staggering. And that was two months before the movie yeah. actually comes out. I guess where I would push back is you're basically saying, look at the numbers of people ordering stuff, uh, you know, advanced tickets online as a direct result of the strategy that they've employed. Mm -hmm. But I would caution you, you're not going to like this, but, like, I would argue that, like, slapping Star Wars on anything and pushing it out now would probably engender the same type of of response. Like, so, so, like, people like you are excited because you're an intelligent and discerning viewer. Like, you know what I mean? So you are picking up on, oh, my God, this could be good. But, like, let's be clear. How many people crashed the phone lines not because, like, it seemed like an intelligent story treatment from the limited previews that they saw, but they saw grizzled Harrison Ford saying, Chewie, we're home, and they went apeshit. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not a high bar to clear 
and and using like the the fan interest as a gauge of like anything in terms of like yeah it's a sound marketing strategy if disney's if disney's goal is to make money oh yeah like absolutely like it's a really good idea like it's a really good idea but like let's let's just i would say i don't want to confuse that with like good tasteful movie making like you know <clears throat> i think the pixar analogy is is instructive and it's like these are the same people who were like Hey, Finding Nemo was fantastic. Let's 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 make another one. Let's make it about the Ellen DeGeneres fish. That would be great. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't like some that wasn't some like artist at Pixar or like John Laster or whatever. Like that is like some studio executive douchebag who's just like, hey, you know, we could do that again. Now with Star Wars, there is a lot of source material. But like, I guess where you and I differ is to me, that's a lot of source material that could like easily go bad. So would you say your your skepticism about Disney's motivations and the way that they're going about this from a, a corporate killer instinct, zero-sum business approach, mm-hmm. does that affect your anticipation for the movie? Yeah, it does. In what well, ways? Well, it, it's, so, so it's not the only thing that's affecting my anticipation of the movie. Obviously, the prequel trilogy, it can't help but doing that because – of the the aggressive way they're they're just like yes and there will be movie X and movie Y and movie Z and like in the back of my mind I'm just like having been scarred from the prequel trilogy and also being aware of the fact that like when you pump too much product out in the marketplace mm-hmm. your return on investment might be good initially but like creatively it's going to dilute things so let's focus on making this movie really 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 good and then let's see what happens. The, the, the universe of good story ideas, even for Star Wars, is finite. And no matter how good something is, when you pump too much product... I mean, there was a time in like the 90s or the early 2000s when like they were getting chat... Like, like the must-see TV, your friends and your Will and Grace or your Frasier, Seinfeld, whatever. They were getting challenged by like CBS and Survivor. NBC had like the number one dominant poll position because their shows were great. Friends was great and Frasier was great and going back to Cosby and, and Family Ties and Cheers. Unchallenged because great products. And then Survivor came and NBC had this idea of like, hey, let's make all our shows, all our episodes, like let's supersize them. Let's make them like 10 or 15 minutes longer and so we can ward off this Survivor challenge so people would like be extra interested. And the writers were just like, we don't want to do that because it's really hard to like write 20 tight minutes of good television. Okay? So how about we not do that? And NBC was like, no, 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 guys. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And like the results were terrible. And like this, you know, led to, to, to you know, people like, like the, the, the inevitable downturn in quality of those shows. And I, I do think that like no matter how good a product is, when you put more of it out there, it's going to lessen the impact. You know, like that's just the way it goes. Like I don't care how good anything is. Like do you really think that like it's sustainable that way? Like no. it's it's Marvel can maybe get away with it because the Marvel universe is expansive. Mm-hmm. The Star Wars universe is not. Unless you start introducing like like lots and lots of tertiary characters and cousin Olivers and whatever and making them like, you know, main characters. And like, God, I'm coming off like such a Grinch. And I don't mean to, but it's just like there is a principle of diminishing returns and Disney's aggressiveness is kind of like making me 
kind of hedge a little. Now, could that now is that necessarily going to affect the first movie? No, no, it, it might not. And and you know, but but there and are I other think reasons. Disney saying we're going to make a new Star Wars movie every year for perpetuity, like for as long as it's profitable. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it might take five, six years before that quality just drops and people are like, no, okay, you're yeah. turning out, you're doing this wrong. Yeah. And Disney might just say, okay, this this isn't working. But in those five or six years, they'll have made $40 billion on their $4 billion purchase yeah, of Lucasfilm. And, and, if your, and if your motivation is to make money, Disney is doing the exact right thing. If I was running Disney, I would be like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to run this thing into the ground. <laughs> like, like you're, So you're right. From the standpoint of if we're just concerned with like the bottom line, if you and I were like majority or minority shareholders in Disney, they are going about this the absolute right way. From a business standpoint, it's genius. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so you're right. Your evidence of like people crashing the, the servers and like selling out tickets in the first couple of days, building anticipation, it's, it's been a marketing wet dream. But from the standpoint of you and I, who have a shred of shame and like, and are emotionally and creatively invested in this thing that meant the world to us, it sends up red flags, and that's a concern. Well, what what does it need? What does it take? How many good movies do we need to wash the bad taste out of our mouths from the prequels? Or what does this movie need to do to succeed for you? Okay, so I think, and I think you would be the first one to agree. It needs to invest in characters that I can relate to. Like, it sounds like a low bar. It's really not, given the way movies go. I need to build up an organic interest in the fates of whoever these people are, the, that, that funny-looking stormtrooper and that masculine-looking woman, you know, that, like, apparently are our protagonists. I need to be on my hero's journey with them. You know, I don't want to feel like I came in in the middle of a ride and I'm expected to care about them simply because this is Star Wars, damn it, and you're going to, you know, go along on the roller coaster ride with them because I want to know where they came from. I want to know what the stakes are. And I want to know that, like, they are on the level, you know, that they're not coming into the scene as, like, overly stiff wooden Jedi warriors. Um, that, or, or, or diplomats or people that have a cadence with which I am unfamiliar. I want people to be my eyes and ears. That is not a hard goal to meet, yet I think it's increasingly the trilogy, the prequel trilogy is kind of like obliterated that. What about you? Putting my trust and my faith in, in the right people, I would say, with Lawrence Kasdan writing the script based on yeah. the original <clears throat> treatment by, who is it, Michael Arndt? Yeah, um, I think to the original treatment. The Academy so, Award winner from Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. So knowing people who get characters and Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote The Empire Strikes Back, which was the most character-driven, most character-centric, yeah. and characterization had yeah. the most characterization of those. And J.J. Abrams, who just looking at the movies of his that I've seen, which are the the two Star Trek movies and Super Eight, I think. I liked the characters in those movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They had flaws in other areas, but I I liked those characters. So I. I think just from the little bits of the trailers and the the TV spots and and those those few teasers, I have felt like 
like there's a shot of Daisy Ridley's character in that trailer when she's just looking off at, and maybe it's just the way the trailer is cut and it yeah. might not flow this way, but it looks like she's leave, watching a ship leave this planet in the distance. Mm-hmm. That's that moment of Luke Skywalker looking at the double sons of Tatooine thinking, yeah. I want to get off this planet. I want to yeah. get off this desert rock and do something more important. And that's that kind of character arc that everybody connects with. That's why yeah. everybody fell in love with Luke in that first movie. Because we, everybody wants to leave their hometown when they're a kid. Yeah. So I think I'm going to be able to connect with this character at least on some level. Besides the characters, or anything else? Like any other? Yes. I think that when we talk about the use of the technology mm-hmm. and the use of the weaponry and, and the, the ships, you know, the Star Destroyer is a beautiful, distinctive ship. The tie, like, and this is why it's just hard for me to imagine that it can have the same kind of impact that the original trilogy did. Because can you imagine a scenario where the ships become as distinctive characters as they did in the original trilogy? That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's a big deal for them to be something more than, like, throwaway transportation vessels, even if they are glossed up and... and futuristic looking like will they be distinctive looking and and that's a that's a weird point but it's actually an important point will i be able to invest in like a a, a, a like an endor uh, like the moon of endor you know in the brief time that i got to sample it and return the jedi like it had a flavor now granted a lot of that flavor was because of the, the ewoks fine you know or hoth ships and planets being distinctive characters in a way that the characters are distinctive characters like that's important like that's not ancillary like i i i'm going to answer the question it's not going to happen they're not going to come up with a couple of ships where you know i'm going to sit up and be like oh or they're not going to come up with a planet that's going to be like especially memorable like endor or tatooine or like even cloud city like that's just not going to happen it's it's impossible I, i think that just goes into what are the limits in the year 2015, 2016 to how something can really like move us and like get into our hearts? So let me ask you on that same vein, aside from the characters, and you gave a very nice explanation of like Daisy Ridley's character and getting a, a little breadcrumb of a taste of mm-hmm. what the stakes might be for her. Is there anything else in those movies where, you know, the thing I said about like like the planets, the world. Well, the things like, you said, like the, the world building in terms of the atmospheres and the yeah. vehicles and everything. I don't know about the other planets because just from the marketing, we haven't seen much. I know there are other terrestrial. There's a forest planet. There's a, yeah. a, a snow planet. Yeah. Um, but just looking at the what I think is going to be like the planet that we're on for like the first act of the movie, which is this planet Jakku, which is the desert okay. world. It's not okay. Tatooine. But okay. the, fact, the, the fact that there were like supposedly in this planet's history, there was a major battle between the Empire and the Rebellion after the Battle of Endor. Okay. And, and now it's just like a graveyard for ships. And you just okay. see cra- like wrecked Star Destroyers and the thing. Just that kind of landscape gives it a little flavor that I'm really interested to see. Yeah, because you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, uh, and again, I'm not, I wasn't really into the novels, but like mm-hmm. the one novel series that seemed to have penetrated the mainstream culture from Star Wars was like Timothy Zahn's mm-hmm. Grand Admiral Thrawn trilogy. Yeah. I mean, not to get too technical and nerdy, but like the landscape painted by the, those books especially the first one, was it like called Heir to the Empire or mm-hmm, something? Mm-hmm. About the, the wasteland that was the Empire and the way they were trying to sort of reboot that, that was captivating. At least it was captivating to like 12-year-old me mm-hmm. as a the basis of a storyline 
that's intri- that that I would just say that's intriguing. Right. And then going back to the vehicles, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of new vehicles, but what they mm. have shown me is just new versions of the old familiar stuff. So yeah, new versions of X-Wings, yeah. new versions of Star Destroyers and TIE yeah. Fighters, and it's it's nostalgia. So okay. they might not give me something new that I love as much as those old things, but mm. they're giving me the old stuff that I can rely on. So we'll I see. think you really just kind of – I think you really kind of probably gave the best case scenario for the movie though. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like so, so this might be too macro a point, but like – is it possible in the year 2015 and 2016 for a mainstream American movie to capture your heart and my heart in a, in a way that is distinctive and resonates with us even three quarters as much as the original Star Wars trilogy did? Like, put it another way, is it important that this movie is really good? And if it is really good, how good can it be to justify a podcast like this? The, 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 the countless hours we spend, like, reading spoilers. Can Star Wars be, continue to be the organizing principle of so much of our, you know, free time? And, and how good does this have to be to not feel like a massive letdown? This goes back to what I said at the beginning, was when I heard the announcement a couple of years ago that they were making new movies, I said, okay, they'll probably be better than the last three Star Wars movies I saw. Yeah, but they're not going to be as good as the first three Star Wars movies I saw because they won't have that emotional connection. They just won't be my Star Wars movies. Yes. On a intellectual, cerebral level, I still believe that. But it's been deafened by the clamor of excitement for this movie. And I want this movie to be fun. Okay. I, it, to be the type of movie where if I have kids in the next couple of years... Mm-hmm. that they might be able to appreciate this new saga of Star Wars films the way I appreciated the original ones. I, I don't know if this movie or any other movie can have the same sort of emotional resonance as the original Star Wars movies, but the fact is I'm not seeing these movies when I'm seven, eight, nine years old. I'm seeing mm-hmm. these movies as an adult, and that just changes you. I mean, that changes the way you watch a movie. It changes the way you make a movie. That's why the prequels were so different from the original. Because yeah. George Lucas was a different person yeah. when he was making them 20 years later. Yeah. So, I think... Uh, I mean, if any movie was going to... Or, or franchise was going to have that kind of effect on me personally, it would have been those Marvel movies and the Avengers and things like that. And I loved those movies, and I spent a whole lot of time thinking about those movies and their source material in the comics. But... They didn't penetrate your consciousness, though, did they? Not you know the same what I know, You know what I know about you? Mm-hmm. I know that you love the original Star Wars trilogy, and the other thing I know about you is, in 1989, when Tim Burton's Batman came out... <laughs> What's the over-under on how much you saw it in the theater? Like, nine times? It's either seven or nine. I know it's an odd okay. number. That's one of those two. Okay. The nature... Look, I'm willing by, to... By the way, that came out the summer before I was in second grade, and I still managed to see that movie seven or nine times in the theater. Your parents did a bang-up job. Oh, I, I saw it with everybody. Anybody who was over 20 years old who could take me to the theater. I, but the thing is, is that... Okay, so... I think that your point is good, and a lot of it – okay, so a lot of it has to do with the organic process of aging. Like, I get that. Like, there's nothing that feels the same to me at age almost 35 that it did at age, like, 9 or even age, like, 16. Like, something like, you know, like like – even something like, you know, like Christmas is different 
something like Thanksgiving is different. Like, like, like your first kiss is just, it's just, you know, it's just different. Like, you know what I mean? Like things are, you just, so, so I'm willing to chalk up a fair amount of like, okay, a lot of this is just aging. Okay. But there's also been a massive cultural shift Mm -hmm. in how we consume media. Okay. Like pop culture is disposable. Like I'm not making like a very, I'm not making like a, an earth shattering or like esoteric point. If you take, you know, I did something earlier today when I was like starting to think about um, my discussion with you. Take a look at the top all-time 50 grossing movies of all time. Sure. You know, I even when I was little, I liked to look at that movie. I liked to look at that list. I don't know why. I was always like a little corporate titan at heart, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But like, if you looked at that list throughout the 1980s, the top 50 grossing movies of all time, it was actually extremely stable. The same movies were in that list with very little variation. Like. Star Wars was the box office champ from, like, 77 until it was, like, dethroned by E.T. in 82. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, in second place for, like, 15 years until it overtook E.T. again because it cheated and did the special edition. And then it was, like, knocked out by Titanic, like, whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. for the 1980s, it was, like, pretty stable. Like, the same movies were always in that list. E.T., Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Beverly Hills Cop, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, Tim Burton's Batman, like, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at that that list now, it changes every summer. <laughs> it cha- it doesn't just change every summer, Ryan. It Wait, changes every like every four yeah. or five weeks. Yeah. It, it changes rapidly, like week to week. And the inclusion oh, just, of just movies, this year between Jurassic World, between the whatever the fifth or seventh Furious movie, yeah, like these things are in the top five now, and it's been yeah, it's 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 it's, it's like that list changes rapidly by the week, and the inclusion of movies is largely indifferent to quality. So. The latest Pixar movie will get in, regardless of what it is, whether whether it's like a masterpiece like The Incredibles or Wall-E, or whether it's a piece of crap like Cars 2, like it will make the list. And so will Furious 7, and so will Hunger Games, no matter which Hunger Games version it is. And so will Man of Steel, which I've never talked to you about, but like Man of Steel is objectively a terrible film. <laughs> okay. Like so like the public is increasingly oblivious. So, like, the notion that any of these movies could have, you know, even, like, 50% of the impact that Raiders of the Lost Ark or Empire Strikes Back or Jaws or E.T. had, that that's not going to happen. I've always said the best-case scenario for The Force Awakens is a great Harry Potter movie or, like, a good Lord of the—a great Lord of the Rings movie. Or here's the best example. Like, what was the last big budget movie that you saw to really hit you in the gut? So like, like you talked very eloquently about like the Marvel movies. I know that you, you know, you have a deep and abiding love. You got excited for them. I think they're by and large all really good. Some are better than others. I think movies like Iron Man and the Avengers, you know, when I look back on like a movie year, I'm just like, oh yeah, I saw those and I like those. Mm -hmm. And if it's ever on TV, it's just like, yeah, I'm going to stop and watch those. Like those are great movies. But like, the last big budget movie that I ever saw to really like hit me in the gut and like got me so excited that I was like looking at my watch in the middle of the movie to make sure that like I, I you know because I was praying that like an hour hadn't gone by because there was that much left <laughs> there was that that much less time left in the movie for me to enjoy. That was in two thousand eight when you told me about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight and mm-hmm. I saw it. You know maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy before that, and maybe like the really the best Harry Potter movies. And I think the best Harry Potter movies are probably like the ceiling for The Force Awakens. And that's not you know that's not damning it with faint praise. The best Harry Potter movies are like fantastic. But like, what was the last movie that you saw where like 
it messed with your mind and like you thought about it for days and days and days. Because for me, it was like seven years ago, The Dark Knight. It would be the same one. It would be The Dark Knight had that effect on me. And maybe since then, the first Avengers movie had that sort of emotional reaction because it was the culmination of five previous movies that, and it did something that just had not been done before. So there was the, the emotional connection to my childhood comic book friends and the spectacle of not seeing that before. But, but even still, my response to the dark Knight was probably more significant and stronger. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but those moments are still few and far between. Mm Mm-hmm. And and I, I just and, think- now, and I think part of what you're talking about again goes to that same notion of the amount of content diluting the product on just a bigger level of when you look back at those movies from the 70s and 80s you mm-hmm. had like one great outstanding movie like that a year or every two yeah. years yeah. and now there's just so much so much of these and the blockbuster coverage, ginormous yes. movies like there's no weekend now in a yeah. in a, a movie studio slate where they can't where they have like the free time to release something and actually but I think that's where I think that will help Star Wars. This part of its box office return will be the fact that they're releasing it in the middle of December, mm-hmm. and there's not really another movie that's going to challenge it for dominance at the box office until March, when Batman vs Superman comes out. Like, I think the next sort of big action movie that will attract a lot of the same demographic will be the X Men spinoff movie Deadpool. But that's a rated R movie. Right. That's not going to make a bajillion dollars. In the there's theater. no movie in its lane mm-hmm. around the time it's released. No. In, fact, in fact, The Force Awakens is going to be in IMAX theaters for four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So. If you're near an IMAX and you can see it in a regular theater or an IMAX, you'll probably see it in, you'll an, see IMAX, it in an IMAX, and you will yeah. have that opportunity for a straight month. Yeah, and and like other people have said, you know, the when you look at your list of all-time box office movies, there's Avatar sitting at the top at three uh, yeah. plus billion dollars. Yeah, Avatar did not shatter records on its opening weekend. Yeah, the way it made that was its staying power. Yeah. People kept going back yeah. again and again and again. That was how just, Titanic made number one, too. Right. It just, they just stayed there forever. Yeah. Star Wars has the capacity to do that. Star Wars might make $200 million its opening weekend. Maybe not. It's December, and people yeah. have other stuff going on. But it'll be around for a long time. Yeah, it's not, it's not going to shock me if it's still in theaters in May, mm-hmm. if it's really good. So, 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 that, so you're right on mm-hmm. that aspect of it is that like it's, there are so many movies being released. Like you know, The event aspect of, of it is kind of diminished, although Star Wars is an event unto itself. But I do think also that there are larger forces really quickly in the culture that also probably culminate in like the diminishing effect of the impact of the movie. And one of them is just like because of technology, because like everyone's voice is amplified, like there is everything is an event. Like everything is endlessly speculated on by professional critics, by you know sort of less professional critics, by people like you and me. Um, there's speculation, there's conjecture, there's immediate criticism. Like everybody has a hot take on everything. And I swear to God, I'm not trying to devolve into the old man. Like this is what's wrong with America. No, it's just these are the f- cultural forces shaping how media is received. Mm-hmm. Like it's impossible. The tastes have become so stratified because everyone has – an avenue and options to like view stuff. I don't know what your media home media setup is, but I have a pretty modest home media setup, and even that is like because of iTunes, Amazon, Netflix. I can pretty much see any movie I want to at any time, either for free or if I pay a modest like fee of like 
between two and five dollars. I can see any movie I want. I can see Doctor Strangelove. I can see Amy Schumer's Trainwrecked. I can see everything in between. And so, like, having a multiplicity of options creates little like niches where you know Star Wars is like a unifying principle has been a unifying principle in the past movies like Beverly Hills Cop and Raiders of the Lost Ark these were movies that, like brought people together over the water cooler but like now and now now more and more even if you go to the Star Wars opening weekend or you go with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parents or your kids like it's my it's probably not going to resonate with people as much just because everything is just more disposable in pop culture like we were limited in 1987 there were only so many video stores. We all had one VCR. Families had to agree on one thing to watch. We didn't have phones. We didn't, you know, we didn't endlessly get together and speculate about everything. And because you can do that, I mean, you know, John Stewart has a great line: "Like when you amplify everything, you hear nothing." Um, and I think that kind of has a has a has an effect on how this movie can penetrate the cultural consciousness. Like, that's the thing. Like, no one thing can penetrate the cultural consciousness anymore. It's impossible. So, like, if we're talking about scaling our ambition for this movie to, I'm really looking forward to this movie. In the hands of J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan, it could go really well. I think that its high, its potential upside is, like, it could really, like, put a smile on my face and be really well done and make me sit up and say, you know, like, hey, this is, like, one of the best big budget movies I've seen in the last, like, you know, five years, that's probably about as good as it's going to get. And because of the forces shaping our world, we're going to quickly move on no matter what. Like, that's just life. It can't do much more than be a really good movie. Hmm. So I'm just, I, I'm just saying that, like, because of the nature of these movies because of what the prequel trilogy did because of the manner in which Lucasfilm and Disney are planning on releasing this and just because of aging and the way we consume media now it's unlikely that this movie is going to change my life it's unlikely that this movie is going to change your life right. i am very excited to see it and maybe part of it is a defense mechanism like i don't want to be disappointed but like your best case scenario and my best case scenario is like hey that was really good. Mm -hmm. That was like really strong character development, really great action scenes. You know, that's about it. Maybe maybe the approach I want to take with these movies is these are legacy films. Yeah. And these are films for the next generation of fans. Yeah. Like, and I've, I've had this conversation with, like, for instance, like, whenever people would, like, ask me, it's like, okay, well, when you have kids, what order are you going to show them the Star Wars movies? Are you going to yeah. show the prequels be first? Because that'll spoil that big reveal. That, And I always went back to this fact that I'm not showing my kids the prequels. <laughs> I'm only showing them the movies that I like. Yeah. But... To a degree, I mean, I I know I, from friends and people who have kids who who don't want to watch the classic movies because to them they're dated. And you yeah. look at other generations that just they they don't get the special effects. It's not overwhelming to them. They, they're they're they think they're paced slowly. I think the first Star Wars is paced within an inch of its life. Yeah, but I agree. For, but a, the younger generation disagrees with that. So if this. I would like this, the new Star Wars saga, to have that kind of effect on the next, uh, on the little kids these days, and to give them a movie that is objectively better than yeah. the Phantom Menace yeah. and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Now, will it have that same effect that the the original ones had on us? I don't know. Probably not, just because 
in a couple weeks later or a couple months later, they'll have the next big thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can't tell you. It's culturally the way we digest media, the way we digest movies, the way we digest these sort of pop culture events. We go through them so quickly. We do. And we just, we, so if it's like the, uh, a sort of fast food version of these blockbuster films, then then you're not savoring anything and you don't yeah. have to live with it for three years, three years waiting to find out if he actually is Luke's father. Can you imagine? No, and I, I think it's a really instructive point. And like, just to sum up real quick, like I just, I don't, I fear I've come off as like a Debbie Downer. I'm not, like I'm excited <laughs> about it. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but like I'm a young man who's well, not so young, but I've been, you know, I've been down this path before and I, I take a dim view of when corporate conglomerates like meddle with the things that I love. Um, and, and real quick, because, you know, I know we, we talked about delving into this particular subject. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but like the, it's an interesting notion of the casting that they've done. And I think it's part of a larger trend, right? Like shoehorning original cast members and original storylines and character threads in with newer, younger people so they can, like, carry the load. One thing I will say I am somewhat optimistic about is I am glad that, you know, it seems like Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan are determined to, like, turn the page in a substantive way and have the eyes and ears be funny-looking Stormtrooper and Daisy, whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just, I don't want to know spoilers, so I'm trying not to... <laughs> when you say funny-looking Stormtrooper, is that code for being black? <laughs> yeah, but your audience needs to know that I myself am a minority, so, like, I get immunity. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but okay. I will say that, like, it is refreshing that, like, it seems that the basis and heart of the storyline will be the journey of these two because I am prepared to care about these two. I am not prepared to care about like three dyspeptic AARP eligible, you know, actors like, like, and, and, and I hope that their participation is organically tied into what's actually happening as opposed to like, Ah, yeah, we're making a fourth Indiana. Oh, what you what you want, Karen Allen? Let's get Karen Allen. Sure. Okay. Yeah, let's give her a son. Let's, okay. let's let's be fine. Okay, so this is the thing. Like, I was I was right there from the beginning. Like when they when they released the first teaser for this, which was more than a year ago. The first yeah. teaser was Thanksgiving weekend last year. Oh God, can you imagine? Yeah, and all it showed you was the new characters, little yeah. glimpses of the new characters. I was thrilled with that. I was like, yeah. okay, I know we're gonna get Luke, Leia, and Han back, but. And I, I use this line all the time. I don't want to see the new adventures of old Han Solo. Yeah. It just doesn't appear to me because yeah. these characters were cool because they were young rebels. Yes. That was the spirit of those movies. It was youth rebelling against the older generations. So I didn't want to see an old Han Solo. But when the second teaser came around and I saw Han and Chewie together and they said, we're home, I can't deny that I I had that emotional twinge and the movie the movie felt a little bit more real when I yes. saw that moment. Yes. And and the tr- so so I I agree with you, but I would modify that by saying that the trick to whether and you would agree with this too, the trick to whether it's going to work ultimately is whether they their presence ties organically into a larger storyline. Mm-hmm. What I don't want is sort of like clumsy going back and forth to like an elder, you know, gray beard, Luke Skywalker, 
dispelling like dispensing like occasional nuggets of wisdom. So like the way they used Leonard Nimoy in the first Star Trek reboot mm-hmm. was actually like fairly a de- like a decent thing to do. It like his his screen time was like narrowly tailored and appropriate. It gave me like all the feels I was supposed to feel, but like it allowed me to just sort of you know, get that out of my system and move on with these new people. What I don't want is, I think you're right, the new adventures of old old Han Solo is like, I think that's counterproductive, and I think mostly mostly because their stories have been told. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I don't understand with all these clamors to, like, reboot this and reboot that and bring back Indiana Jones and, you know... Bring I do back not the, want to see another Indiana Jones. Yeah, like, bring back this person. I mean, certainly you were aware of, like, all classic things. People are clamoring to, like get these characters back. And, like, the thing is, is that, like, yes, if you're talking about, like, a television show that was, like, canceled after one season, it was beautiful and brilliant, like, yes, I want to see more of what's going on. But, like, it's increasingly puzzling to me why we clamor for more adventures of characters whose story arcs have been completely told. Like, there is nothing more to Han Solo that, like, I need to know. There's nothing more to Princess Leia that, like, I need to know. The story was told in those three movies. It was told beautifully. It was told elegantly. You had a beginning, a middle, and an organic end. Their characters resonated precisely in the context of, like, the struggle to beat back the Galactic Empire. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Like, I don't need any more. So unless you can tie them into the story in an organic way that's not just, like, fan service— um, it's not anything that, like, I need to do, and this is kind of, I'm bordering on, like, a cruel thing to say, but, like, I don't need old people, like, I don't need <laughs> the old, act. like, like, I'm sorry, like, you're right, they were glamorous and endearing because they were, like, young rebels, and, like, I hate what our culture does to old people, particularly in movies, I think old actors often can do amazing things, and I think not enough storylines are geared toward the retired crowd, blah, 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 and I think that's true. I think we are way too youth-obsessed. I think we spend way too much time catering to, like, 12-year-old boys demographically in terms of advertisements and movies. So, yes, I don't want to go too far down that road, but, like, I'm sorry. Like, no one was clamoring for Marlon Brando in 1996. It just wasn't. Like, like the impact of these people was, was at a specific designated moment in time. Like, Carrie Fisher has not acted... For, like, you know, you know, in anything other than, like, limited spoofs, for what? Like, I mean, I can't remember the last thing she did. I think she did when Harry met Sally, like, 26 years ago? Uh, she was in The Burbs, which came after that, but I don't know. Okay, yeah. not that much after. And I know she did, like, a quick thing in Jane Silent Bob. Right. But like, or, or in Mike Myers' uh, the, uh, the first Austin Powers movie. But, like, that was just kind of spoofing her character. Like, it's not clear that Carrie Fisher is, like, a great actress, and it's not clear that, like, she still connects with the character. And and I don't necessarily need to see Carrie Fisher. Like, I love Carrie Fisher, and I think Carrie Fisher is, like, an amazing writer and everything. But, like, it's not going to fulfill any kind of zeitgeisty need that I have to see her. Same thing with Mark Hamill. Like, I don't need to see Mark Hamill to know, like, Blue Skywalker's story was told, beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. So, like, with those two, it's just, like, you're not really acting in the past few years, so I don't need to see you. And real quickly, like, the thing with Harrison Ford is, you know, he, his presence has been pushed very heavily in these trailers, and again, it sort of leads me to believe that he's going to have at least a more sizable role in this movie than the other two, and he's going to be the kind of connecting thread, mm-hmm. and maybe he'll be on our hero's journey, like those two guys, those two other guys as well. But here's the thing, like, I hope that the movie does not rise or fall on Harrison Ford's presence or Harrison Ford's performance for two simple reasons. One... Harrison Ford doesn't really care that much about Star Wars. That's not me trying to, like, you know, again, no, like, true. be depressed. He doesn't like Star Like, he doesn't... 
he has said repeatedly over the past 30 years, I don't want to do this character. Mm. Like, I wanted to die in Empire Strikes Back. I, and, and in the 90s and the 2000s, when he was asked, like, are there any characters you would want to you know, revisit? He's like, oh, yeah, we've been trying to get Indiana Jones off the ground for, like, you know, a long time. Mm-hmm. But he's just like, oh, Han Solo? No. Like, I've done everything I could with that character. He's like, it's not an interesting character. I don't actually like him that much. He's not that invested. That's part one. And part two is his lack of investment shows generally. Like, yeah. this is a person who there an argument could have been made from, like, 1981 or 1977 when the original Star Wars came out right into the mid-90s who could have laid a claim as like one of the great Hollywood actors of all time of, of that era and one of the like the highest grossing film actor of that time like mm-hmm. what Tom Hanks has been for the last 25 years like Harrison Ford could legitimately have said and he was like sneaky good everyone was talking about like Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise and like Denzel Washington and like Pacino and De Niro but like the thing is Think about like his filmography from that point. Star Wars, his cameo in uh, uh, Coppola in Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, Blade Runner, Temple of Doom, his Oscar nomination for Witness, his critical acclaim in like The Mosquito Coast, Presumed Innocent, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Working Girl, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, The Fugitive, Air Force One. Like that's an incredible body of work from, like, one of our vital Hollywood stars. Like, a, a case could be made that, like, he was first among equals of that, like, of that blockbuster crowd where, like, the people that were Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Tom mm-hmm. Cruise, the guys that were getting $20 million a movie. I think at some point after, like, he stopped making, I don't think he made a great movie after, like, The Fugitive, and I don't think he made a good movie after Air Force One. Uh-huh. For 18 years, this guy has been in absolute crap, and more than that, it wasn't even and so like it wasn't even like with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams who have been also an absolute crap. But at least they like gave good performances in mm-hmm. crappy stuff. Harrison Ford has been terrible in largely unwatchable movies. And so, the one that the one that I think is the most damning is that fourth Indiana Jones movie because as oh, you said, he wanted to do that for the longest time. That but was when in you watch him in that movie, for nineteen years. You and, and I went to see that movie in the midnight showing. Yeah, and like, when you watch when you watch him in that movie, it's like, dude, do you care? Do you want to be there? Because he right. certainly didn't look like he did. Now, now one could say that, like, yeah, he was ill served by like a terrible script, but like, but, you still get a feeling that like the guy would be game if he was game. Mm-hmm. Like, and if he's not game, because legitimately he's like, well, I'm sixty six. Do I really want to be like doffing the fedora and cracking the whip? Fine, but don't do it. It's like it was a terrible movie, first of all, but like. He was going through the motions. His jokes didn't land. Mm -hmm. He was stiff. He was unconvincing. He looked uncomfortable. He looked like he did not want to be there. And if he's going to be that way with a film role that he absolutely adores and that he spent 19 years cajoling Lucas and Steven Spielberg to make, and if he's going to be that way, uh, granted, albeit with a crappy script by Lucas, but if he's going to be that way while being directed by Spielberg, who still makes really good movies you know, with good source material and even bad movies, like he's energetic and alive. If he's going to act that way for Spielberg you know, with a character that he's wanted to bring back, what's he going to do with – a character that he was ambivalent about at best. Like, you know, he was on The Tonight Show a couple of nights ago, and, yeah. you know, there was a funny moment when, like, I mean, you could, might know better than I do, where Jimmy Fallon was just like, did you get all weepy and emotional when you, like, had the blaster in your hand or had the something? And he was like, no, no. I got paid. <laughs> yeah, I got yeah, paid. That was 
And it was a funny line, Mm -hmm. but, like, it kind of rang true a little Mm -hmm. bit. And, like, I just think this is a guy who is, like, firmly in in what, you know, Bill Simmons calls, like, the keep getting them check stage of his career where it's just kind of like, do you want to be here? Mm -hmm. And it's just – it's a little dangerous putting an iconic franchise in his hands. So I hope that it's a necessary and vital performance, and I hope that he kind of shakes off the shackles of – whatever he's been doing for the last 18 years and gets back to, you know, I don't know, what do you think, a princess and a guy like me? Or barring that, the guy who was like, get off my plane. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I just, I hope that's the case. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So these are my trepidations. And and so I I, I fear, like I said, I fear that I've come off as like a a nattering nabob of negativity and like just really like a wet blanket. I want to emphasize I'm looking forward to it and... I love the passion, and I'm going to see it, obviously, more than one time, but, like, I am trying not to get my hopes up because I think there are large – there are micro forces shaping the movie that began with the prequels and macro forces in our society that are shaping the movie that are just – I just don't want to be left at the altar or, like, kicked in the stomach. So I'm just – my attitude is, oh, yeah, that's going to be great. I keep forgetting that movie's coming out. Oh, I should do a double feature with that and the new Tarantino. That'll be fantastic. So that way, if it's like, if it's really good, I can be like, yes. And if it's not so good, or if it's just merely hits par, I can be like, yeah, okay, glad I saw that. I, like I said, best case scenario is like maybe Fellowship of the Ring, or like Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, or maybe The Dark Knight. I hope I'm right. I hope so too, and uh, give the sense that that's probably like the most optimistic closing we're going to get from this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Omar, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of Dead Boffin Spies. I would really love to have you on a future episode, and I think we can probably do a post-game after The Force Awakens comes out and kind of reflect on some of our thoughts about the movie. And the good thing is, with a new Star Wars movie coming out every year for the foreseeable future, we can have this conversation a few more times if we need no, to. No, we, we absolutely can, and I, I want to say thank you for you know giving me a platform and an opportunity to talk with you about like some of the, the larger issues surrounding the movie, um, because I know that you guys tend to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty, and that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really intelligent, provocative talk, um, and it's evidence of like people who know what they're doing. So it's, you know, I wanted to be on this podcast. It's a really good podcast, and I'm really happy to sort of share my thoughts and, like, get yours. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the movie, and I'm just as excited to sort of talk with you about, like, the aftermath fallout of this movie and, and see where things, where the Etch-A-Sketch stands, the landscape stands, following this movie in advance of, of the other ones. It's, 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 it's an interesting time. It definitely is. And we won't have to wait that much longer for as crazy as it seems like it's taken us forever to get to this point. By the time this episode comes out, we will be less than two weeks away from the release. So here we are. It's a nice little, it's a nice little stocking stopper. So I think we should all enjoy it. Hopefully I I will. And I know you will too. That's going to be all for this episode. I hope Omar didn't depress you too much. Next episode, I promise the unbridled enthusiasm will return when Kyle Benning joins me to talk about the journey to the force awakens trading cards. Feedback for the show can be left at the blog page deadboffinspies.blogspot.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash deadboffinspies. You can also review the show on iTunes and you can track me down on Twitter at ryandaily01 or the username Count Dracula. Dead Boffin Spies is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Walt Disney Company and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. And seriously, the movie is only two weeks away! Eee!